0: Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller and welcome to The Forever Student. Raghunath, welcome to The Forever Student. Hey, honored to be here. You're doing a great job. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I wanted to jump right in. Uh, I know that in your teens, you started off in a punk slash hard rock band called Youth of Today, which became famous all around the world. What lessons did you learn from that part in your life? And to follow up with that question, how and why did you transition into becoming more into spirituality
1: and mysticism? Mm, thanks. Um, great question. A lot of times people think because I went from the punk scene and the hardcore scene that that was a very negative experience. And then I got into spirituality and that was a very positive experience. But at least when I was young, I'm 55 this year. So in the early 80s really there was no outlet for creating music most of the musicians I knew as a teenager played other people's music now not just rock and roll but I even got the sense of this because I I played violin and I played tr- trumpet in orchestras and in bands and even though I grew up listening to classical music I thought you know these guys aren't writing the music I'm just playing a cover song of Beethoven or a cover song of Mozart. Mozart Mm. and Beethoven, these guys were the greats. I'm just like a cover band. You know what a cover band is? A band that plays another person's music. That means they play in the local bar or the local nightclub and they play a Led Zeppelin song or they play a Van Halen song. And to me, I always felt like this copycat music is uninspiring. It's just playing somebody else's art. So, that there was an outlet within the punk music scene to create your own art. Now, another thing I really took away from the punk and music scene was um, I wasn't very talented. My musicians weren't very talented at the time. And we did feel like we had a message to say. And it was something that I hold of value today as well. That Heart over technique. Like follow the heart, even though you might not have the technique down. And I think really the the um the success of that band was because we really were connected with our message. Now we felt like our message was a positive message, an uplifting message, a good message. We were into we were always into this idea of self-control, controlling your mind, positive outlook um, refining yourself as a person, similar to what your podcast was. And this is in my teenage mm-hmm. world. So we felt like, you know, this is a great message. This we want to put out there to the world. And you know what? We eventually became good musicians. It took. It caught up with us. If I waited for us to become like expert musicians. And I feel like some people just wait. They get a degree. They want a second degree. They get a third degree. And they never like, it's almost like a ready fire, but they never, or ready aim, but they never fire. You know what I mean? They can become like degree junkies, but never actually do anything with those degrees. So another very big, um, valuable thing I learned from that punk hardcore scene was, if you want to do something, you just do it. And the whole principle of that music scene was based on, we're just going to do it ourselves. We're not going to wait around for a record contract. We are going to make our own music. We're going to put out our own records. And then we started our own record label. I started a label with my high school friends, and we started putting out all our friends' records. And you know how you do it? Because I didn't know how to do it. We just started doing (laughs) it. And that's how I learned what branding was. I I, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) we didn't know what anything was we didn't know what anything was (laughs) we just started doing it and we figured it out um now there's like industries of uh, i'm a brand professional and a record executive i'm an a and r person i handle i relate with the you know it wasn't until many many years later when we actually got signed on bigger labels where i was like you know and, and the record company was saying i think you need a manager i was like do I? I've been managing this stuff my entire life. I've been booking my own tours, putting out my own records. So it was really weird to step back and let other people work for me and give them a cut of my our our, our uh in income. But anyway, so that was another like valuable lesson I learned also from that scene. It wasn't just I mean punk scene is noisy and it's crazy and it's reckless and it's filled with drugs. Mm. <laughs> but I really learned to do things take But like get serious and just do things and it will figure itself out. you love to sing, just go out and sing. You love to make music, get on the street and make some music, record something for people to hear, you know, be proactive. That was a huge lesson in the punk scene for me.
0: What do you think is stopping people from doing what they know they should be
1: doing? Um, Doing something they know they should be doing. Well, there's a fear of failure. Right, that's a huge one, fear of failure, fear of uh, expectations of parents, of friends, of community. Like, I don't wanna do that. They're gonna think I'm like this. I, I feel like that. this is like the biggest burden people carry with them. Um, I am overly concerned about what other people think of me. What a burden. That is so, so sad. So, uh I think part of a spiritual quest is we have to release that. We have to release the other person's expectations of ourself and be a, be focused on what your offering is and be aloof to public opinion.
0: yeah, and how do you like if you were to advise someone on step one or a step on how to sort of start with that where where it's to ignore not necessarily to ignore the opinions of others
1: but to not take them so seriously well i think you have to choose who's i, I like the opinions of others but i want to choose whose opinions those are now if I, I would have if i would have listened to my parents who are who who are well-meaning they would have had me going to business school law school who, who, whatever right i would have if i would have listened to good friends and my band they would never have me leave the band and join an ashram. So I think you got to like, there's a part of you following your heart and the part of it is following people of integrity that you trust. But ultimately, only you know, ultimately, it's up to you to fly the plane. You can go to flight school, right? And you can learn how to use the simulator, but ultimately, like it's your choices in this world that's creating your destiny. And you have to take full responsibility for that. And, um, I do want opinions, but I don't want every opinion. If you have people that are jealous of you or envious of you or short sighted in their vision or live, you know, the, you know, the analogy they use is like an elephant. Um, how does the elephant trainer get to hold that elephant with a little rope around his leg I mean, it's a massive elephant and they chain that elephant down with a little stake in the ground. Well, they do that from the elephant, from a baby from babyhood, excuse my sneeze, from babyhood, they chain those elephants down. And then as the elephant grows, it always thinks, well, I guess I can't move because this thing's on my leg. So if we have like a limiting belief system from childhood, why? Well, because my parents had that limiting belief system because their parents had a limiting belief system. And I grow up with that limiting belief system. That's a problem. That's going to be like a little chain around my leg. So I think it's important to examine that fear of failure, that fear of well, I can't do that and, and and maybe just relinquish it and maybe change our thinking. And that's part of like our our rebirthing ourselves. Um it I think it's going to be harder for some people than others depending on their situation. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And
0: and 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 one thing just to add to that, like what when you were mentioning uh, which opinions you should listen to, one thing that I'm a strong believer in is when you take, firstly, be very selective with with whose advice you take. Uh, But secondly, also understand and acknowledge that the advice that is given is given by that person's experience in life, right? So your parents are going to give you uh, a specific type of advice. If you take advice from a monk, it's going to be through his lens. He's not going to give you advice on how to be an entrepreneur the same for your parents the same for your friends the same for your boss the same for you and me you know like we should be very smart about what we listen to uh, when that advice comes on our uh falls on our
1: lap for sure you know i have a lot of monks elderly monks in my life that i keep very close to my heart and i really respect what they say but i'm not going to ask a monk for marriage advice (laughs)
0: because
1: they've never dealt in marriage and children and raising children and living in America and having your kids deal with uh, video games and um, uh, 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 tablets and things like that. I want to go to practical people who are spiritualists, but in the world and are immersed in family life. But I feel like they walk with integrity in this world. At the same time. There's a lot of things I would ask a monk questions about. Um, If they're scholarly or if they're realized or if they're detached, they have something else to offer me. And of course, the enemies, people who are just envious of what you do, you're never going to get a fair reflection of yourself and how you're moving in this world because they're always going to see some shortcoming in you that may not even be there. If you hate a person, and there's always going to be people that hate you, you're never going to be... I think it's important to get to a point in your life where you hate nobody. But even still, there's people that are going to hate your guts. Because you could hate nobody. Look at Christ. He didn't hate anybody. He was the he was the he spoke the language of love. He was the he was the um, Lord of peace and they crucified him. It, he he prayed for the people that were murdering him. So in yoga, they call that samadhi. That means you have no enemies. You don't, see pe- you don't see people as your enemy. You see them controlled by ignorance. You see them controlled by, by a type of desperation. You see them uh, moving against their higher nature. But you don't hate a person for that. Why would you hate a person who's in ignorance? And in, in the yoga system, in the, especially in the bhakti yoga system, we're trained to love those who are cruel. We're trained to love those who are unfortunate and we're trained to love those who are lost. Compassion, tolerance, and love. These are like very powerful. <laughs> and we know it to be true because people have been t- uh, tolerant, compassionate, and loving with us. And they've dealt, dealt with all our nonsense. Absolutely. And
0: Raghunath, just to, just to take a step back, because I... I know your story quite well through your interviews with Joe Rogan and with Rich Roll and, and your, your website. Just to give people an understanding of post-punk rock, how and why did you transition into becoming more into spirituality and, and mysticism? And what did that look like? Like, what was that next
1: step? Again, sometimes when people think of punk rock, they think of noisy music uh taking random drugs on the street f- living in your own filth and because a lot of times punk was like that too you're sleeping on the streets you're taking random drugs it's a it's a very dark scene um but although i loved that music our message was quite different we were very clean cut we were into uh healthy healthy living um we were in we were all uh strict uh Plant, plant-based diet, and this was like in 1984 when nobody was, like, it wasn't even in the conversation to be a plant-based anything. They're like, you know, what? Um, or, you know, and so what happened was our band, Youth of Today, almost created a scene within the scene. It was like people who liked that music, but they liked this flavor of self-care of controlling the senses and the mind of a positive mental attitude instead of the world sucks and blaming. A lot of times I felt like the punk scene, by the way, I love the punk scene and it, it taught me a lot, but I felt like there was a blaming what's out there instead of fixing what's in here. See, the problem with blaming is it creates a smoke screen for my own shortcomings. And so a big part of a yogic practice in Bhakti Yoga is we stop that blame game. We stop looking for the faults out there and really start to focus and turn that moral, ethical uh, microscope on myself and see what can I do to contribute? What am I doing now that's not contributing? Sometimes in the name of self-betterment, I may become arrogant. I become hateful. We see that all the time with religions. People get into a religion and then they hate another religion. People get into vegetarianism, veganism, animal rights, and they hate people that are not vegan, vegetarian, or into animal rights. People get into juicing and organic foods or local foods or politics. People get into politics for, um, they wanna make the world a better place and they become hateful of the other political party. What good is our self-betterment? If the ripened fruit of all my work is now I'm hateful. We say it's no of no use. So we have to cure that disease of hate from the roots. And notice like this is actually the disease. The actual disease is hate and it's within me. It's not something out there. It's already in me. And you can tell it's working because as you start to evolve on your on your path, you become Christ-like. You become Buddha-like. You become Krishna-like. Why? Because there's no more enemy. There's no more enemy. The only enemies are these coverings of your own spirit. The calm, the crow, the lobe, the lust, the greed, the anger, the envy. That's covering my pure, you know, the Buddhists would call it your Buddhahood. Or or you'd call it your Krishna consciousness or your enlightenment. Um, These are the enemies and they're within me. I can fix it. I can fix it right now. I just have to choose to. So our sadhana, our spiritual practice is a way to fix ourselves. We're working on, fi- now, I'm already pure. I'm just covered over. Just like sometimes you get a jewel, but it's a diamond in the rough. You've got to do certain things to that diamond to actually bring it out. And there's some chipping away. And that's what that's the, the, the spiritual practice is. So um, I didn't, feel like what I was doing was jumping up rungs of a ladder. I felt like it was a very progressive path. I liked the music. The music got me into clean living, positive living. That was part of my culture anyway. And then once you stop putting the bad in your body, like, okay, I'm not going to eat this. I'm not going to act this way. I'm going to control my senses. Then you feel like, okay, what is next is this this and you know of course i'm reading these books by great yoga masters by uh, you know by enlightened this was my fascination metaphysics uh, mysticism spirituality in a very broad-minded way i started to think well what's next okay don't ingest poison i understand that be compassionate in your diet in your lifestyle with other people i understand that what's next and all of the traditions go back to this one big Himalayan peak we have to climb and that is the burden of your very ego and that's massive because I can be uh, a yoga yoga master so to speak physically I can be a contortionist I can put my legs behind my head I can press up and jump back to chaturanga you know I can uh, fast maybe for 21 days on water I can um, uh, be incredibly learned in sanskrit or pali or memorize B- uh, buddhist texts or hindu texts perfectly I can um, be incredibly physically fit, But I can still be an asshole. I can still be arrogant. I can still be a narcissist. What good is being fit if I'm a narcissist? So the real genuine yoga system in bhakti yoga is we start to chip away at a full spectrum type of healing. I don't want fitness, big deal. You could be fit and be a, You know, you could be into human trafficking and be fit. Who cares? I'm not interested in just fitness. That's very thin slice of a pie. I want that full pie. And so with that, we have to first control the senses. Yeah, I get that. That's not the end. That's the threshold. That's the gateway. That's the doorstep. And when I walk into that, then I've got to tackle this other beast that I've not only been carrying for this lifetime, I've been carrying it around for lifetimes and it's massive and it's a beast and I got to wrestle this beast and it ain't easy. Hey, giving up meat and fish and dairy and all that stuff. That stuff's easy wrestling with this ego that I've only invested in my ego as my worth. Like this is me. I'm the singer of a band. This is how I look. This is where I'm from. This is my ethnicity. These are my values. This is my stuff. This is, you know, my attractiveness. This is my body. This is my career. This is my car. This is my parentage. Come on. My entire self-identity is tied to stuff. It's unbelievable. And the yogi say, no, you're not. Not only are you not your stuff, or your parentage, or your education, you're not even your body. You're not even your skin. It's, it's, it's really big. And to really, really digest this, you start to think, well, what the hell am I? What if I'm not, right? Because a lot of times people like they lose their career and they're devastated because they were so connected with their career as their self. Sometimes they lose their car and they'll cry like weep over their vehicle, right? Sometimes uh, they connect with a particular country or something and they somehow get lost, they they get, you know, your visa runs out, you have to leave that country. Sometimes they're connected with their appearance and they lose their appearance. They get old, they get disfigured, they lose their hair. I mean, all you gotta do is Google search men's hair loss remedy, it's like billions. Why, because their identity is in their hair. We're not our hair. What is hair? It's just like crystallized waste sprouting from your pores. That's not you, man. You're something so much more than crystallized waste. You're a pure spiritual being. If you think you're your, your, your hair, you're setting yourself up for failure. There's a lot of people with lousy hair that are great people. There's people with no arms that are great people, no legs that are great people. disfigured people that are great people. There's people with nothing, and there's people with tons of stuff that are great people. It's got nothing to do with our stuff. It's got to do, first of all, it's got to do with our very birth. In our birth itself, there is our worth. We are part of God. We are part of divinity. We are part of spirit. Our birth is our worth. We are already valid. I don't need validation from you or my parents or my, or my, or my, or my, my family members. Sometimes I want my, I want my uh, brother, my older brother to think I'm, I, I've made something out of myself. You're, we're desperately trying to find validation from people who may never give us validation. Give me a break. You're already valid. You're already valid in the eyes of divinity. Therefore, you don't have to worry about looking left and looking right to get people's validation, you're already valid. All we have to do is figure out what our offering is in this world, and then offer it and then offer it and refine our offering as we grow. That's powerful stuff that comes back to the first question, aloof to public opinion. I've already know what I'm here to give. Now, let the dogs bark. Let the dogs bark. Let them praise me. Let them hate me. Who cares?
0: How did you? How did you go about? I mean, by the way, that was one of the like my favorite five minutes uh, of of the year. I I, I do have a follow up question because it's you, you talk about wrestling with the ego. You're talking about finding what you're supposed to give back or give to the world. And in your life, is that something that happened? early on? Or is that something that happened? Because I know that you traveled to India and and in 1988, I believe, which is 33 years ago, obviously India was a completely different place. The, The first question is, when we talk about when we talk about wrestling with the ego, when we talk about you specifically as Raghunath, like understanding what you could provide to this world, is it something that you found there? And the second question, or you can start with this is, what drew you to India in the first place?
1: The idea is that truth is truth, and there's no such thing as Hindu truth, Buddhist truth, Christian truth, Islamic truth. Truth is truth. It's for all people of all times to apply to their soul. No one owns the monopoly on truth. No religious tradition does. In the same way, you can't say I study Jewish math or Hindu math. It's just math. It's truth. It's like how to work with numbers. I want to imbibe truth wherever I get it. Now, the yogis teach it that way. The, can't, the Vedas teach it like that. That's how they teach. It's, it's not like they're saying, oh, you Christians, we don't like you Christians. we got to convert you. The whole teachings of Veda are we can't convert somebody. They're already a spirit soul. What am I going to convert them to? Being, this, being themselves? That's what the yoga system is. We're not trying to make some, a Christian a Hindu. We're trying to help people remember who they are. And if you're a Christian and you take it seriously, you'll be a better Christian. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times spiritual traditions, they get the, the, the gate closes and they become exclusivist and they see, well, my religion's right. And I feel bad for your religion. I'm trying to be tolerant of your religion, but truthfully, mine's the right way. It's the only way. And that's, that's problematic in the biggest picture, because what you do is you create others. You create the saved and the sinners. And the yogis don't believe like that. They believe that everybody's soul, there's a pure soul theology, that everybody's pure, they just forgot. And masters will come into your life, if you're sincere, to lead you out of dark to truth, to lead you out of hate to love, to lead you out of um, poor choices to good choices, to lead you out of... M- the world of the temporary to world of eternal. But you got to be careful because the criticism and the hatred of others is what binds you to the material world. So that's the care. That's the, that's the, that's, that's the big stumbling block when spiritual paths become exclusive. That doesn't mean you won't find a niche tradition that really resonates with you. But you've got to understand that everybody's on a particular path and it's not my position to uh, to judge or to critique another mystic tradition i could just say it's, it's just not for me but i can see that that person's evolving from that tradition but it's in the criticism of others it's like a stumbling block on our own path and that's taught right in the actual teachings itself so why was i attracted to india i feel like they got the very wide gate it's it's like it's woven right into their teachings it's a very wide gate of spiritual um of a spiritual path it's very inviting uh, very inclusive that's why i was drawn to it I initially was drawn to it because I became a vegetarian and I knew that India uh, had been speaking of vegetarianism for millennia. And I started studying Ayurvedic medicine, even before I started studying yoga. And that's what sort of led me to the Bhagavad Gita and the teachings of, Oh, I get it. This isn't a Hindu book of knowledge. This is a book of knowledge. (laughs) There's a difference, a book of knowledge. It's not for, Hindus, a Hindu is a changeable thing. You can convert from Hinduism to Islam or Hinduism to cut you can't unconvert yourself of being a spirit soul, you might say I don't believe it. But the fact that your body is animated, according to the Vedas, it means you're a spirit soul in the same way a chicken body is animated until it dies. And then the soul or the spirit or the jiva or the energy whatever name you want to give it leaves the body in the same way a banyan tree is animated until that spark of life leaves that body and then it becomes a dead log and the mushrooms and the fungus take over and eat the body just like it does with my body so this is the difference it's sort of like a study of spirit and matter and how to and 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 um a distinction of who you are and who you are not and then how do you connect with yourself in your real form there's a according to the vedas this form of mind you're seeing this italian american new yorker is not my real form it's a temporary form. in the same way i had a dream last night i was very very tall and very very huge but that wasn't my real form you know why it was temporary, I just created it in my in my consciousness. This form is also just created and it's not permanent, it's temporary. My form has changed my entire life and it will change in the future. But there is a original viewer of this form and that is the spirit. And as, um, who's the Christian philosopher um, who wrote, who wrote "Merely Christianity"? I'm having a mental block right now. Anyway, we said we, we are not um, we don't have a soul. We are a soul. We don't have a soul. We are a soul. We are a soul that has a body, and that's the way the yogis look at it. You forgive me if I've drifted from your question, sir. No, you you are
0: spitting wisdom left, right, and center, and it's uh, and it's beautiful to listen to.
1: I you know why it's you know why? Because it's not mine. I'm not that wise. But if you study from wise people and wise traditions, it makes you appear to be wise. That's my only qualification. I repeat from what I hear from the wise people. And I try to apply it to my life. Just like a a, 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 an electric uh, an electric lamp appears to be bright it's not it's just dead matter you need to plug that lamp into a source from the source it becomes alive and it lights up the whole room so if you're seeing anything in good in good with me it's because i have teachers that have lit up my life and they they're from a tradition that have lit up their life but
0: with that said wise people are often extremely humble and you've just proven that you are too (laughs) You know, humility
1: is um, honesty. It's not like, humility doesn't mean to think less of yourself. It means to think of yourself less. We understand humility means, reality means I'm tiny. That's reality. That's not mean being humble. I am tiny. I'm looking out my window right now and I see millions of blades of grass. I'm a spirit soul, just like that blade of grass. I'm not bigger or even better. You know, I'm in a tiny little state in a tiny little country on a tiny little planet in a tiny little galaxy. That's not to say I don't know so much is not being humble. That's being honest. And part of our spiritual tradition is to realize reality. We're tiny. And if we have a little bit of light in our life, it's because some light person has like, bong, touched us on the forehead and given us some light. So thank you.
0: Raghunath, you were a monk for, I believe, six years in India. And then you came back to the US. What was your time like as a monk? And what made you come back to the US?
1: Well, I came and went to India on a regular basis. So I didn't spend all six years. I've traveled in ashrams all over, but I, but I, definitely have spent a lot of time in India. And, um, this is the magic, the magic See, When I was younger, I would think like, who are these like nuns and priests who, you know, thou shalt not have sex. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not. I was like, what kind of like cruel, sadistic, no fun. God, do you worship? Like, why can't I enjoy life? God, we've got these senses, we've got these bodies, why not enjoy them? So uh, that was like a question. And then after a while, I started to realize, see, if you approach it from a naive way, it seems like it's just self-denial. But the idea of monastic life, the true idea of why there's letting go, Like what, we didn't do a lot of things. We didn't have, I was celibate for six and a half years. We didn't go to movies. We didn't, you know, stay up late. We went to bed early, we rose early. We took cold, freezing cold showers. Why do this to yourself? We spent hours in meditation and chanting and selfless seva. no one paid us anything. We didn't shop, there was nothing to buy. Why do these things? These are all the things that people enjoy because when you take away the things that give you pleasure from going out there, right? I'm going on Amazon Prime, I buy this. People who buy this generally buy this. That makes me happy. (laughs) Oh, I can get that, oh, I can get that too. All these things lighten me up, right? Oh, look at her, she's beautiful, she's looking at me. I like her, oh, she's got a friend, I like her. We do this with food, we do this with bodies, we do this with products, we do this with vacations. Once you stop doing that, life becomes boring. And the next question is, where are you going to get your pleasure from now? That is the magic question. With nothing, with no money, with no internet, with no. That's why a a key part of parenting is let your kids get bored. When your kids say, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored, they are saying they're about to go somewhere deep. Let them get bored. And then they're going to start to kick into their intelligence and their imagination. The yogis say this too. We take away everything from our senses and we're left to go inside to find something deep within us. This is incredibly valuable. Why? Because our senses are never going to be fully satisfied. Sometimes they're satisfied. Sometimes they're in great pain. Sometimes they're excited. Sometimes they're miserable. Sometimes we get stuff. Sometimes we lose stuff. Sometimes we're in love. Sometimes our heart is shattered. Can I find some happiness underneath all of that? That's powerful. And when you start meeting people who are incredibly joyful, connected and loving with absolutely nothing, that's the magic. That's the mystery key. That's the key I want. And I met people like that and I feel like that's what I want to follow. How do you do that? How do you deal with nothing? And so that's monk life was a great practice. I'm gonna have nothing, there's nowhere to go. But you know what, being in this world, I'm in this world, I got five kids, I'm married, I got a a property, I've got cars, a motorcycle, I'm in this world. But can you apply those principles? It's okay if you don't, people say, well, you're not serious about your spiritual life. If I'm not, don't worry, I'll suffer tremendously people are amazing to try to call other people out don't you think they're already getting called out don't you think people who are cheating get the results of cheating that's part of that's part of getting slapped around by material nature if i'm attached to my stuff i'm going to suffer why are we happy if people are going to suffer i'm firmly convinced that people can have stuff or not have stuff they have to learn the art of being connected connected to spirit. And if they're not, I don't hate them. I'm not trying to call them out as fakers. I'm sad for them. Our job is not to call people out. Our job is to be compassionate. See, there's a problem with call out culture, we want to call it. You're unsincere, you're insincere, you're a fake, you're a fake. How about Hey, if a person's a fake, they're in pain. Are you going to hate them? why not rehabilitate them? But generally, we don't wanna rehabilitate them. Generally, we wanna be right. And so I'm calling everybody else out to protect my rightness. Don't we understand what we've created? It's the same old thing. I am the best. That's materialism. You can do it in any any way you like, in the name of caring. We're just calling people out because it's a smokescreen from my shortcomings. That's what we've created now. It's quite sad. It's a world of overlooking our shortcomings and, fi- and becoming like incredible, like almost like archaeologists and go digging into you and your psyche and what you did four years ago or 10 years ago or nine, and trying to find your shortcomings. Put the microscope on you. This is a yogic teaching.
0: Yeah, I have a lot to say about that because I think one of the big things, one of the big things that I learned um over the last few years is specifically around attachment. And what I learned about attachment and, and this then came directly from from Buddhist monks in Nepal was if if you have external stimuli or external influences impact your internal happiness, that is a sign of attachment. If external stimuli or influences impact your internal happiness and fulfillment, that is to them and to me too, classified as attachment. And why I'm saying this is because you mentioned a couple of things and, and I found that very interesting. One is an, a, the, the attachment can be to an ideology, right? So religion can be an attachment. Your political views can be an attachment. At the same time, your family can be an attachment. At the same time, your car and your house can be an attachment. For me, what true internal fulfillment and happiness looks like, and this might be a bit extreme, but its it, it's got to be, <laughs> is if all those things are taken away from you, and in your case, they, they were, are you happy? F- for me, I think that's a very important question that I wrestle with a lot, where it's like, you know, if this gets taken away from me, um, if w- whatever it is gets taken away, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be happy? Am I going to be fulfilled? Um, and I think and I think, becoming a monk, I mean, I, I'm not sure what being a monk is like, but but I'd envision that uh, a lot of the answers to those kind of questions might have come your way.
1: It is an incredible point. And I, I first want to point out, it's not like an on-off switch. It's not like, okay… I'm attached to everything. I'm, I'm attached to my false identity. I'm attached to my hair, my looks, my legs, my abs, my car. And now I'm a monk and now I'm not attached to them. It's not like that. You can give them up and still be very attached. And um, it's a process. First of all, we have to understand it. We have to fully get this understanding like I actually don't possess anything. It's not like, well, I'm going to have to give up my car. I'm going to give up that my house. I'm going to have to give up my strength and my beauty and my career. It's not like, it, it, it's not like you have to volunteer. If you don't give them up, they're just going to be taken. You have to understand that you don't own any of these things and they're going to be taken away from you. I have some good friends right now who are struggling with cancer and maybe terminal cancer, meaning cancer is taking away everything. It's taking away their families. It's taking away their health. It's taking away their beauty. It's taking away their hopes. So it's not like their family in one sense was ever theirs because if it was theirs, they would be able to own it. So there has to be a point where we, if we don't voluntarily give it up or at least voluntarily give up the, the conception that this is mine. If you don't voluntarily do that, that's okay it's just gonna get ripped out of your hands. If you don't hand it away, it's just gonna get ripped out of your hands and you're gonna suffer as things get torn away from you. You know, um, So yeah, it, and it, so it's a process. So the monk life helped give up that attachment. It doesn't mean I'm free from attachments. Matter of fact, as I get stuff, I have to really be careful that, this, that um, at any minute, something that I even feel is really mine. Like my kids, I have kids we know historically kids go through puberty and they get to a point in their life where they're and you might have done it yourself you might say hey you know what mom screw you go to hell because sometimes your kids who you've given everything to just can say i'm over you and you never talk to them again it happens all the time maybe some people who are listening have done that to their own parents or maybe you've had kids do it to you you know why because we don't own our kids maybe you have a love of your life that you've lost that have died or they just left you for somebody else and it's heartbreaking you know why because you don't own that person we own nothing this is the truth and it's not my truth it's any thoughtful person's truth and until we embrace truth we're always going to suffer in pain and truth will is it is the truth will set us free from that pain So we encourage people to embrace that truth because we don't want people to be in pain. But yeah, and and so there's different methods to let go of that. Sometimes it's to give everything up. And if you don't have the ability, because some people just can't, I don't wanna walk away from my kids, I'm raising my kids, but I have to give up the conception that I own them. And if I don't, it's gonna hurt. Now, maybe my kids will just love me my whole life and they'll never say, screw you, dad, guess what? i'm going to have to die or they are going to have to die we come into this world with nothing and we leave this world with nothing so the yogis say the the importance of this world is to find that internal connection and that everything and everybody is actually here to assist that and I'm here to assist them. That's part of my offering. My offering is to assist them in their internal connection. I don't own them, but I'm here to assist them. I am I have to love them, but be detached. That is like walking a slack line. Loving them, but being attached, uh, detached from them. And it's very, very delicate thing to balance. Don't you think?
0: I, I completely agree. When people ask me the difference between but when people ask me how can you love something, but not be attached to it, um, I think it's an answer that's that's not easy. Uh, I mean, I mean, finding an answer to that question is is not something that's easy. But uh, I think that the the point that you made around owning something has to do with attachment, and then love is. Yeah. I think
1: that's the difference. Yeah. When I'm, when I think I'm a, like, I'm sure you might've been in a relationship or relationship with a parent, or maybe you were that parent, but sometimes people try to possess us and they call it love. You ever felt like that? It's not love. It's possession. And it doesn't feel good. And it doesn't feel like love. Oh, I love you. I love you. And I bought you this Valentine. I'm going to fly you here. I'm going to take you there. But they really want to own you. They want you to be part of their property. and so there is a difference between trying to possess somebody and loving them because ultimately and i think that's part of what we're here to figure out in this life
0: yeah what are you uh, this might be a bit of a strange question but what what values and what teachings are you trying to instill in the lives of your children
1: like, what is sort of the most important? That's a, that's a great question. That's not a weird question. That's like the most important question. First of all, that we're not the center of the universe. That there is spirit, God, source, Krishna, whatever you want to call your higher power at the center. We're not here to be the center. We're here to serve the center. We should be in this world and tread lightly. We should be kind to all living beings. Um, you know, it's interesting, the culture of bhakti yoga, which I practice it, I can just share some, just like experience because that's the culture we grow up with and the ritual behind it. And I, I see the kids growing up and it becomes very natural. For example, we have a little altar and the way we perceive God as is Krishna. So we have a picture of Krishna on our altar. And so when the children were very little. You know, we'd go outside and go for a walk and the berries would start in the spring and all the raspberries and they call them uh, black caps. They're just like wild berries. And they say, oh, look at these beautiful berries. Instead of saying, let's eat these berries, they say, let's pick these berries and offer them. Let's all oh, look at the flowers. Let's pick these, let's offer these flowers. Wouldn't they be great? Wouldn't these look beautiful on the altar? And so what's happening is these simple rituals have deep, deep information behind them. They have deep substance. Unfortunately, if we don't have good teachers, we get lost in the ritual and forget the substance. So the substance in those with the, with the, with the kids was, they understood that I'm not the center, that divinity is the center. This isn't for my enjoyment. I get my enjoyment from giving. Not just like a parent, the parent gets the enjoyment from cooking the whole meal, right? They don't get it from sitting down. Hey, give me some food. Give me some food. That's a type of enjoyment. But any person who's a parent understands that there's so much more pleasure in preparing and nurturing and loving than there is. Sometimes the parent can make a huge meal and there's nothing left, and the, but all the kids are happy and the parent feels so good inside because the pleasure comes from the giving. That's the real enjoyment.
0: Yeah. I love that. I wanted to close on what you're currently doing. And and you mentioned Bhakti Yoga quite often. And I know it plays a big role in your life today. Could you talk a little bit about what it is and what you're currently doing um, in your life?
1: Uh, Bhakti Yoga just means the yoga of connection through love to divinity. It's something that I teach. I teach it through, you know, when I take, I take people on uh, pilgrimages to holy places, Monday, I leave with a big group to go to Nepal, and we'll visit holy places in Nepal, as well as trek through the Himalayas. Then I have a deep dive in November um, to holy places in India, and I do that every year, and that's the funnest thing I do all year. January, I lead a, a training. It's actually three different trainings going on simultaneously, and I'm, I'm part of each one, but I have a, a lot of other teachers with me. One is of sacred literature of India. One is a 300 hour advanced yoga training. One is a music training and a, a, a intro to kirtan and how to lead kirtans and also a, uh, Ayurveda, uh, for yoga teachers training. So th- those are all things that I do that are like incredibly s- satisfying. I'm working on a book of my story. Uh, basically a lot of things we talked about today are going to be in my book and, uh, yeah, I travel and teach and it's it's my great joy. I raise my family and um, I'm just happily happily engaged
0: in, in life. Fantastic. Where can people find out more about you or connect with you or uh, or about what you're currently doing?
1: Sure. The best way, ragunath.yoga. You can even get a dot yoga now. So it's r-a-g-h-u, n-a-t-h dot yoga or on Instagram. Uh, Ragunath Yogi is my Instagram handle. R a g h u n a t h Yogi. Um, yeah, I pretty much share the things I'm teaching, and oh, and also we have a website. I mean, um, not a website, uh, a, a podcast. I do every day called Wisdom of the Sages. It's a deep dive into uh, classic um, uh, uh, spiritual literature, information, truth from India. It's deep, but it's fun and funny, and we have a good time. I do it with my old friend from punk days who also became a monk with me when I was young. So it's called Wisdom of the Sages, and we've, we just finished our 400th episode. Oof. We, do it every, we do it every day, so it goes by quick.
0: Fantastic. So firstly, thank you so much for being here. It was, uh, it was beautiful. It was motivational, inspirational, and extremely educational at the same time. We will be sure to disclose all the links that you've shared uh, and all the handles that you've shared uh, in this episode. And um, forever grateful that you made the time. I really appreciate it.